0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, So good to be together on such a beautiful morning. Um, My name's Aaron Stern. If you're brand new with us, I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, we're in a series uh, walking our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, I'm a a big reader, or at least try to be. Uh, I read a couple of two or three books a month. And there's a book that was written in 2007 called The Secular Age by Charles Taylor. It's 900 pages long. I didn't read it. Instead, I, wrote, I read a book called How Not to Be Secular uh, by James K.A. Smith. That was 130 pages, which is a summary of the 900-page book. It's uh, the way to go. Uh, and he's talking about secularism and the ways in which secularism has grown and has become and is a part of our culture today. And secularism creates a fixation on everything in our world, our five senses, things we can touch and see and smell and feel. And as a result, what he suggests is that we've lost a sense of transcendence, the things beyond ourselves. If we think of maybe being in a stadium that has the ability to open and close the roof, And it's like a night game, and the stars are are clear, and it's a beautiful night, but we've got this game going on, and on this beautiful night, they close the dome, and everybody's fixated on what's going on in the field. That's what secularism does to our sense of being and our sense of the world. It's like we get fixed on this and lose out on the grandeur and the beauty of what is beyond. And if we don't get meaning from beyond ourselves, we will try to find it without God in ourselves or in our world. And that is exactly what the writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to address. Addressing what happens when we seek after the things of this world to give us our ultimate meaning. Everything, as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, under the sun. And he says, 38 times uses the word meaningless, which in the Hebrew means, is, the, is the Hebrew word havel, which means smoke or vapor or like a chasing after the wind, meaning it's not solid. You can't grab a hold of it. It can't hold you. You can't climb on it, put the weight of your life on it. Now, the goal of Ecclesiastes is not to say no earthly joys, Only spiritual joys. Actually, what he's trying to say is to find the right meaning so that earthly joys point to spiritual joys. The goal is that, as we talked about last week, work. We talked about the week before that, pleasure. And there's several other things we're going to talk about here throughout the summer that they don't become idols, things that we look to, but instead they become icons, things that we look through in order to see beyond and remind us of the transcendence of God. So here we are, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 today, starting in verse 1. It says, There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. It goes into this little poem. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. Now you might be a little confused because of a few of the things that are mentioned in here. You know, a time to hate. Like, is there ever a time to hate? He's not making moral exhortations in this list. He's describing the full spectrum of human experience, both positive and negative. This is a poem, and it, it is communicating that God establishes time for a wide diversity of emotions and experiences. Now, this might be actually one of the more famous little passages and portions of Ecclesiastes. Something that somebody might quote periodically. Oh, it's a, there's a time for that. There's a time for this or a time for that. I think I've quoted it to my kids. And it's beautiful. We think, oh, this is so beautiful. Right thing at the right time. It's not time for chocolate. It's time for broccoli. And we think, oh, that's so beautiful. But verse 9, let's just keep going. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. What's he saying now? He's saying there's a time for this and a time for that, but we can't know what those times are. Everything, when you don't know what time it is and what's supposed to be happening when, you feel maddeningly maddeningly out of control. This is actually a poem of frustration. Like, I don't know what's going on and it's a time for this, but I don't think it's a time for that. And wondering, is God toying with us? Am I being treated unfairly? Because I want it to be the time for joy, but right now it seems to be like a time for frustration. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is communicating the realization and the frustration that we aren't in control as much as we'd like to be. I mean, think of your own life. You ever wanted it to be the time to get pregnant, and you couldn't? You wanted it to be the time that you had a job, but you lost one? You thought it was going to be the time for marital bliss and instead it was marital pain? Or maybe you wanted to be married and you wanted it to be the time where you would find that person and it isn't or hasn't? Or maybe you thought it was the time when your kid's behavior would be awesome and instead if it's not awesome. (laughs) You're like, the times aren't matching up with what I want it to be. The health issues came. And he thought, this isn't the time for that. I don't have time for that. This isn't in my plan. This isn't how it's supposed to go. That person was lost. Why did this happen? And these are just the things of our own lives, let alone the broader things like the economy or government. We live in a world especially because we get fixated on what we can see and touch and feel and taste here, that we ought to be able to control our world. That's the assumption of our day, and and a lot of it having to do with the fact that we have technological advances, we have medical advances, we we have so much with brain research, and we can see further out into the galaxies than we've ever seen before. And so we, we think we have progressed. I mean, 100, 200 years ago, we're way better off than them. We're way smarter than them. We're way more enlightened than them. So somehow we should be able to control the world we live in better than they ever did. But really, it's a fantasy that we can control everything. The average Western person actually has 15% of the control over their life they think they do. You think, 15%? No, I've got more than that. Anything more than that is just the illusion and the feeling of being in control of the things that you actually can't control. 2020 certainly taught us this, didn't it? I mean, I don't know anybody that felt like they had like life by the tail and just like, yep, I got this. I planned for this. This is exactly how I thought it was going to go. Yep, we're ready for this. This is what? It's the time. And it's a, it was a case study, if we take a little bit of time to reflect. It was a case study on what happens when we feel out of control. Oftentimes when we feel out of control, we blame, right? Oh, this is the left's fault. This is the right's fault. This is that politician. Them, them, they. Or we get into obsessive behavior. You ever feel like your life is out of control, and all of a sudden you're organizing the pantry, <laughs> in every closet. You're like in other people's rooms. You're like, I need to organize your room. This is a mess. <laughs> or we try to control our kids, so we get a little extra tyrannical. Why? Because everything that I'm going to control, what is at least in my world, what I, what can I control? Obsessing over the news. Constantly trying to gain more information. Or maybe new, making new lists and new rules. More lists and more rules. And certainly, guardrails and guidelines can be helpful. But when it ends up happening is it can suck the joy out of life and rules end up controlling us rather than helping us control our lives. Not to mention the addition of things like trauma triggers and personality types that add to the sense of frustration, and being overwhelmed, feeling like life is just out of control. Control can be an idol. And when people feel powerless, they grasp for control. You might say, oh, I, I'm, not very contro- I'm not a controlling person. One of the telling questions that I have is, how angry do you get when things don't go your way? You ever find yourself in a spot where something goes unplanned, doesn't go the way you want it to, and you kind of f- flip out? I wonder if it says something about what we think or thought we could or should control. Now, not all our attempts to control our lives are unhealthy. There is an element of control or planning that is wise. Ecclesiastes needs to be held in tension with Proverbs. Proverbs says, do this and this is what your life will look like. Sounds very much like a, this is how life will go if you do it this way. Very controlled. But then we have to hold it in tension with Ecclesiastes which says, But I did that, and it didn't go that way. And Ecclesiastes is holding that tension. Proverbs 15, verse 22 says, Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. And yet sometimes we get advisors and they don't succeed. There is wisdom in planning, but can become an idol when we make it the way we determine success and meaning in our lives. And at the end of the day, apprenticeship to Jesus is not compatible with control. Because control pushes us to dominate, to manipulate, to bully other people, to get them to behave the way we think they need to in order to feel okay. In order for us to feel okay. Rather than to love and accept and delight in people as they are and honor the dignity of their free will. See, to, become, to be an apprentice of Jesus, to become more like Jesus, is to become a person of love. A person who, who... And we're not talking fuzzy feelings. We're talking about sacrificial love. Self-giving love. Loving our enemies. Loving those who hurt us. Loving those who don't do what we want them to do. Because control is not driven by love, it is driven by fear. Rich Volotis, one of our overseers and the writer of Good, Beautiful, and Kind, says, perfect love casts out fear, but perpetual fear casts out love. We find ourselves in a day and age where we're exerting enormous amounts of energy and money to maintain an illusion of having control. I mean, think about the millions, billions of dollars that companies are making off of fear. If you don't have this, you're not, fill in the blank. And pundits and politicians making promises, fighting for attention and votes, all because of fear. This is how it's going to go, and we're going to lose this, and this is going wrong. And so we need these new systems, and this new legislation, and this new leader. And then we're going to fix it all. Can I, as your pastor, just for a moment, (laughs) just pause on that particular point and, and just say that as a follower of Jesus, please don't buy into the belief that if we can control legislation or put the right leader in office, then somehow all will be well. Or please don't buy into the lie that somehow with legislation policies and politicians, it is the way to enact the kingdom of God. Go too far. That's what's called Christian nationalism, and it is toxic where we baptize our political ideologies in biblical language. If you're known more as a culture warrior than you are as an agent of healing, something is wrong. Don't buy into political control as the way for God to be in control. All right, that was a side note. So the Apostle Paul writes something similar. There's a couple of passages, I'm going to highlight both of them here this morning, that reference these ideas of meaninglessness in Ecclesiastes. The first one is found in Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul says, For the creation was subjected to frustration. This word frustration is the same word as meaningless right? It's it's subjected to meaninglessness, like what in the world is going on? It doesn't mean anything. It's all smoke, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning. Do you ever find yourself like that? Duh! Uh, mm, uh, groans. It's groaning. All of creation is groaning. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. Things are out of control. I don't think this is your original design. This is not how the world's supposed to be. Groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, so but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship the redemption of our bodies groaning and waiting eagerly what's he talking about he's talking about the return of jesus what was inaugurated on the cross and in the resurrection of jesus will be brought to fulfillment when jesus returns and all will be right, made right and all frustration is gone come lord jesus For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So what's he saying? The world is rigged for frustration. That's what he's saying. In other words, let's grasp the reality of the world that we live in, and that is that because of the brokenness of our world, we are going to experience frustration. It's a fantasy to think that somehow we can order our world in such a way that there's not going to be any frustration. No matter how hard we try, we will never be able to control our world. You won't be able to control your spouse. You won't be able to control your kids. You can't control your work, your money, your time. Now, I'm not saying it has to be all like chaotic and out of control, but it is only when Jesus returns that all things will be in perfectly right order. And so there's an element of us yielding to the seasons that God establishes. Paul goes on, he says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So, here after this little passage on frustration, he leans into the Spirit because to embrace uncertainty in our lives is to embrace dependence on the Holy Spirit. I'm not in control. So, Holy Spirit, I need you. When we think we're in control, we think we don't need someone. We got this. So, the question is is the Holy Spirit your guide or the news outlet of your choice? Your political party? or the anxious anxious thoughts in your own head. I, I think the way that we need to think about it is maybe we find ourselves in a position where we say, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know how this is going to go. I don't know how this is going to work out. But I know the one who does. I don't know, but he does. And I know him. So knowing him is as good as if, as if I knew. I don't know, but he does. And I know him. And that's as good as knowing. And he f- finishes this little passage and he says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be what? To be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. What's he saying? Frustrations contribute to our formation. Frustrations contribute to our formation into the likeness of Jesus. As much as we might hate the things that are out of control, they are opportunities for growth, opportunities for God to work things into and out of our lives. Although the world is not tameable, it is purposeful. God brings purpose even in the midst of, of the things that don't go the way they're supposed to go. I certainly learned this in 2020. 2020, can we just be honest, it was awful. It was awful. It was really hard to lead a church when so many people had so many opinions about every decision we made. Masks, no masks, vaccines, whatever. I mean, it was all over the map. And, and I found myself trying to manage, manage expectations, trying to manage people's responses. And you know what I found? Futile. <laughs> A waste of energy. I couldn't control if people were going to stay. I couldn't control how they understood me. I couldn't control how they understood our decisions. I couldn't control what they did with those decisions or what they did with those understandings of the interpretations. And I was going crazy. And I started to realize something about myself as a result of these massive frustrations. Well, I think I have more control or should have more control, and I really have a hard time when people don't understand what I think they should be able to understand. And it exposed an idol in my life. And so I took time to try and work on dismantling that idol in my heart. And as I've worked on that, you know what I found myself? Having more peace and joy. I find myself enjoying and leading and making decisions with more carefree, following the way of Jesus. I don't care how you respond type of an attitude. Going too far, that's a little too bad. I'm trying not to do that. (laughs) Ronald Willheiser in his book Sacred Fire says, we mature by meeting life just as God and nature designed it, and accepting there the invitations that beckon us even deeper into the heart of life itself. See, you know what I found? It's impossible to carry a cross and grasp for control at the same time. Because to carry a cross, to deny ourselves and follow Jesus, means we're opening our hearts and our lives to his leadership, not our control of our own lives. The ultimate goal is holy uncertainty. That term, holy uncertainty, is a term borrowed from the desert fathers and mystics. And holy uncertainty is the capacity to live with a very loose grip on our plans. Maybe a better way to say it is a very loose grip on our desired outcomes because of our plans. Because our security is rooted in a relational connection to God, not a false sense of control. Now, this isn't about passivity. Like, oh, well, whatever, I don't care. It's about enjoying what is. Which is the goal of Ecclesiastes, for us to be in the present moment. Enjoy the gift and the limitations of the present it's about less anxiousness and more joy and peace. James chapter 4, verse 13 says, Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or to that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why do you not even know that? What will you, why you don't even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? Sounds like Ecclesiastes. You are a mist. That appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, James says, it is, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Holy uncertainty. Open-handed living. God, it's not how I wanted it to go, but I trust you. It's not what I wanted, and I don't think it's the way that you originally designed this world. But God, what do you want to do in me in this? God, how are you forming me? Holy Spirit, I need you. I don't know what to hang on to right now. I don't know how to navigate this right now, but you do. You do. Help me to loosen my grip. Try to loosen my grip on my plans so that I can strengthen my grip on the cross. Strengthen my grip on the cross. Our goal every week is not to set up this topic and I, this idol that is illuminated in Ecclesiastes so that we can bump our neighbor. Say, we're going to talk about this, you control freak. Because scripture is first a mirror before it's a set of binoculars. And so the goal is self-examination. Our weekly practice throughout this series is about self-examination, about confession, about humility. Weekly practice is to read Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 11. We just read through and studied through. To pray Psalm 139, 23 and 24, which says, search me and know me, O God. Find any anxious or offensive ways in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. And as we open our hearts like that, to honestly evaluate our relationship with control. Ask yourself, am I a control freak? You might know, say, no, 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 that's such strong language. But how are you with your kids? How are you with your spouse or your roommate, that messy roommate, your job, your employees? See, there's a war going on for the throne of your heart. And control can take center stage. Jesus is inviting each one of us to put him on the throne of our hearts. To yield to his will and his way. And this is the paradox of Jesus in the gospel. Strength is found in weakness. Control is found in dependence. And power is found in Surrender is the opposite of the way that our world says that we will be in control of our lives. It is the opposite of the ways that somehow we will feel okay with our lives. And Jesus is inviting us to live in a place of surrender. For some of you here today, this might be for the very first time. You've never been in church before, or if you've just never said yes to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is inviting you to cross the line of faith and to say, Jesus, I trust you. You can simply pray that prayer. Jesus, I trust you. Surrender. It's a prayer of dependence. It's a prayer of help. And begins us on this journey of following Jesus. For some of you here today, maybe you have more questions. It's not too late to jump into Alpha. Alpha is each Monday night. you're interested in Alpha, we'd love to give you details on that. We each want to take steps throughout this summer towards a place of dependence, towards a place of holy uncertainty. We want to take a step, all of us together, by taking communion together. As you walked in here today, you should have received a communion.